My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host, Era, and today I have a very special guest. Um, he was actually someone that I thought of only after doing a previous recording with uh, previous guest B. Beeman. Um, his name, uh, the guest today, is Ahilin Arulanathan. Did I get that right? I'm always messing up last names. <laughs> Arulanathan. Arulanathan. There you go. Okay. Thank goodness. Um, he is the, a professor and uh, co-director for the Center of Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Um, he successfully litigated a number of really prominent cases, especially involving immigrant rights. Um, there's a few that we'll kind of, you know, go through and kind of explore further in our conversation. Um, he uh, has been the Senior Counsel and Directory of Advocacy and Legal Director for ACLU in Southern California. And uh, he's also been a lecturer at the University of Chicago and California. And he was also the recipient of the uh, 2016 MacArthur Fellow or the a Genius Grant. Um, Ahilan, you know, thank you for jumping on and uh, thanks for bearing with my long intro. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Happy to do it. You know, we were kind of chatting before this, you know, about children and like, you know, for me being at that stage, I'm fascinated with how childhood and early decisions in your life kind of, you know, spark these nodes of like decisions you make that kind of lead you to where you are today. So for you, particularly in your childhood or like those formative teenage years, um, how did, was there any specific experiences or just anything that happened that ended up getting you to develop a passion for law and particularly around human rights? Yeah, I'm, I heard a lot of discussions about human rights and law and refugees and politics in my household, you know, because, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 1973. So, uh, you know, the, the war in Sri Lanka started in 1983. And you know, I was 10, and there were obviously a lot of people coming out of the country. Uh, most of my extended family, my parents' siblings, came and lived in our house at different points in time, uh, you know, mostly in those first few years from like 83 to, I don't know, 88 or something like that. And then we had other refugees coming to our house. I grew up in Lancaster, California, uh, which has a small uh, Sri Lankan Tamil population our kind of family friends were other Sri Lankan Tamils who had very similar situations. They also had a lot of family members come. We'd have parties where everybody would get together, you know, every, it felt like every weekend or at least every couple weekends at someone's house. And all they would talk about was the conflict in Sri Lanka. It was felt to me like that was like the, the kind of singular topic of conversation. Um, so, and that, that just played a massive role in, in shaping, um, my kind of consciousness, you know, that's not to say that I knew when I was 11 years old or something that I was <laughs> going to end up you know, doing law. I was interested in all kinds of things. I studied philosophy. I played soccer. I, you know, whatever, like various different things, but definitely by the, by the time I was thinking about what to do after college, uh, this was very heavily on my mind. And when I went, when I went to law school, uh, I went, really specifically thinking either about human rights in Sri Lanka or refugee and kind of refugee related policy in the U.S. 
for me, I guess, because I live in Toronto and it's like kind of the epicenter of like Tamil yeah. activity outside of like, you know, India, Sri Lanka, I take a lot of things for granted, especially when talking to folks like yourself and others that I know that live in areas where, you know, you don't have a Tamil grocery store every block in certain parts or like oh. access to Tamil food, you know, whenever I want. So, so really, I, was gonna say, I still remember when I first heard about Hopper Hut, it was like <laughs> years and years ago. And for our little island of this tiny community of Sri Lankan Tamils in Lancaster, we're like, oh my God, there's a place where they have a fast food chain that serves hoppers. It was like incomprehensible, you know? Well, now there's like, you know, tons of like um, spots and even not from like the older generation that, but even like the kids of those immigrants now they're starting up like fusion or like, you know, their own spin on Tamil food. So I don't realize how spoiled I am. So like, I'm always curious because, you know, when people visit Toronto, they're like, they load up on like Tamil food and like they either bring it back or they just eat as much as they can. Um, so for you growing up, um, what was that experience like in terms of, yeah, you did have some, it seems like a presence of, you know, other Tamil families, but I don't know if you had, you know, like, what did you do if you had a craving for like Tamil food other than like your parents or family, like, or like even like get togethers in the community? Like, tell me about that. I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, there was, there were no restaurants. There's certainly no, um, Tamil restaurants. I'm not even sure. I mean, it was a long time. I, I'm, I'm going to guess that maybe there weren't even Indian restaurants in Lancaster until I went to college or something like that. Not 100% sure about that, but definitely growing up for sure when I was a kid, there was not. And we just didn't go out to, <laughs> to restaurants. Uh, and, uh, you know, the food was the food that the people in the communities uh, cooked. Those, those uh, parties that I was talking about, and the friends, you know, our second generation or first generation, I guess you should say we are, because um, parents were immigrants, uh, a crowd of friends are still some of my very closest friends in my life uh, to this day are people who I grew up with in Lancaster who are right around my age. And it definitely had, it, th there was a sense that it was like second family because we were so close. But I realized later that's also because we were insulated. You know, because we were just this, you know, tiny community of originally it was, I don't know, 10, 15 families. And you know, then it got bigger after the war. But um, that we we always had the sense that that we were this kind of people apart. Um, and uh, Lancaster was actually really good. I think it was really good to us. Um, I, I'm not sure you would have any reason to know this. In some ways, it has a reputation uh, for being a, it's a more conservative place. That's definitely true. It has a, a reputation for being a somewhat uh, less friendly to immigrants place than say Los Angeles. But I did not experience um, like overt hostility. Uh, and, and as a general matter, I would say it was really good. It was really good to us. But still also there was the sense that we were an insulated community. And I'm sure that was very, very different that if you know we had grown up um, in Toronto uh, or in London, for example, I went to graduate school in England and I remember going to Wimbledon and that also just like blowing my mind. This is a completely different experience. The idea that there'd be a Tamil person walking on the street and I wouldn't know who they were or be able to talk to my parents and know within like, you know, one, one minute who they were was just inconceivable. I thought I knew a lot of people and there's like two, you know, the two, um, two degrees of separation. I feel like not the normal six in the Tamil community, but there's still a lot of people even given like the work that I'm involved with that I still don't know. So it is pretty remarkable how big and how fast growing the Tamil 
and population is in Toronto. Well, obviously, one of the things that really attracted me to your story is just kind of this important work, immigrant rights and just human rights in general. But before I kind of get into that, you know, like some of the cases you're involved with, I think you're the second person I've interviewed that has won the MacArthur Fellow. You know, what it, can you tell, you know, for the people listening, like, you know, what is that? And how, how did you become a recipient of this like prestigious award back in 2016? Yeah, it's kind of an amazing and bizarre uh, thing. It's a it's a grant uh, with no strings of any kind attached <laughs> given uh, by the MacArthur Foundation. Um, in my case, uh, I think the, the money amounts have varied over time. For mine, <laughs> it was $625,000 that they give you over five years. So it's a lot of money for, for us, certainly. There's no application and you don't even know that you're being considered. It's totally secret. Uh, so, uh, and, and actually there are very few uh, immigrants rights people that had gotten it uh, in the years before I did. After I did, there were a couple of others like right around. Um, so, you know, I like, I definitely knew what it was, but it didn't even, the idea that I might get it wasn't even on my radar. <clears throat> and apparently what they do, it's a foundation, obviously it's part of the MacArthur, MacArthur Foundation. It's a program that they run to try and pick out people um, even the selection process is pretty secretive. Like now I know that I, um, I one of the things I can do is suggest names to them. Um, but I, I don't really know in any detail what they do with those other than to say they have their own internal staff of people who are researching people. And a lot of what they do in researching is talk to other people uh, in your field. So one way that they explained it to me was it's sort of a validation in the sense that a lot of other people in your field thought that you were doing good work. Um, but there's no uh, age uh, rule, like quite people a lot younger than me and people a lot older than me got it. The fields are quite a mix. There's artists, there's scientists, there's musicians. There's not that many lawyers, but there are occasionally lawyers. Um, so literally what happens is you get a call one day. I mean, I was, I was in my office. I was actually uh, going to work and I saw a phone call and I don't, I don't generally answer the phone if I don't know the number. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I saw some um, Chicago number and I immediately put it to voicemail and then I called again and I again immediately put it to voicemail. And I had a brief due that day as so I was late, uh, not, not late, but I was like, right, you know, I was like trying to, to get something done. I got, I got to the office, pulled it up. It was like something like a, I can't remember, like a noon deadline or 11 o'clock deadline or something. So I was like, hacking away, doing final edit. And then I see the same number come up on my work phone. And then I was like, oh, so this is a, some, whatever this person is in Chicago, they know both my cell phone and my work phone. So I picked it up and they said, hi, we're calling from the MacArthur Foundation. And it literally, my first thought was, oh, you must need to speak to the development people. And I was like, oh, I'm, I can get you through the development uh, people. Uh, and they're like, no, 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 we need to talk to you. We need to talk to you. I was like, whoa, wait, what? And then they told me it was just, it was just crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And then they get all the people on who are involved in the selection and they tell you it was just, just mind boggling. So um, yeah, it was really, it was really fun. It was really, really cool, really fun. This episode is sponsored by Nobody. That's right, Nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. Two things. Did you had did you ever hear of this award before you won it? And number two, do they give you money to continue like the work you're doing? Or like what is the purpose of giving you money versus just an award? Yeah, so so I had heard of it. I didn't know, know um um about it. Uh, and there was it had been years, but there was a person in LA uh, who had done really good work on immigrants' rights issues named Julie Sue and another person, Stuart Quo, two of them who had who had done uh work, but they it was 
I, I can't remember how many, but it was many years before me, but I knew of them uh, and the institution that they had built. Uh, so yeah, I, I did know about it. Yeah, the, the money is really strange. There's literally no strings attached. So you can you can literally do anything. You know, you could go buy a car uh, if you wanted. I um, gave about, in the end, it was something like 25 to 30% of it, something like that, to uh, groups in Sri Lanka that I was uh, uh, supportive of, mostly because, you know, the way my career ended up, I had done work helping um, uh, Sri Lankan Tamils who have sought asylum here, who have been jailed in the immigration system here. I've done some work uh, helping people who were caught ensnared in the material support of terrorism laws and the kind of national security state overreach. But really, it's just where it interfaced with American law. And I, I never really was able to spend a huge amount of time doing work directly on promoting justice, accountability, uh, you know, and, and improvement in Sri Lanka directly. So I did that. Um, then I did other. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I would say... Uh, it, it gave me a security that I wouldn't otherwise have felt, um, gave me more security not to worry too much about like just certain kinds of decisions in my career because you feel a certain kind of like recognition and security in that. <clears throat> um, you know, other, I did other funny things. I, I bought a fish tank um, that uh, <clears throat> that actually really helped me get through the Trump administration, if I'm totally honest. Uh, uh, I, you know, helped uh, help fund my daughter's uh, you know, college education, stuff like that. Um, just things that kind of give a kind of layering of security that made me feel more free to pursue the things that I wanted to pursue in my work. Yeah, it's almost like a, almost like a universal income fund for people doing, I guess, like, I know it's subjective, but important work. And um, yeah, like having that money is kind of a nice safety net to kind of not think about one money when making those decisions of what to do with your time. So yeah, you talked about, you know, um, kind of during Donald Trump's kind of run as president. Um, I think there's, you know, mention of you, I guess, especially in the work that you do and like kind of some of the mandates and policies that he had in place. It makes sense that you're quite busy during that time. You know, I think one of the cases that was referenced, Ramos versus Nielsen, I think it's, and something yeah. called, you know, something to end temporary protected <laughs> status. So mm -hmm. maybe you can kind of break down the importance of that case and like, what does it, what was, what is temporary protected status? Yeah, temporary protected status is a really important uh, protection created by Congress back in 1990 um, as a, a method for the U.S. government to decide that a country as a whole is not stable and therefore not a safe place for uh, people who are living in the U.S. from that country to be sent back to. And so the, the government has the power to designate a country as uh, a beneficiary of temporary protected status. And there's rules in the, in, the, in the law. It has to be based on a natural disaster or a war or certain other kind of criteria. Once the country is designated, then this, this, the law requires that every, it can be as 18 months, more or less, it's complicated, but basically every 18 months, they do an assessment of the ground conditions of that country. And if things have not improved, then you have to allow the people to remain protected. <laughs> and this law has been used a bunch of times by um, both Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. for all you know countries all over the world. Um, but a lot of people in it, 400,000 people as of 2016 had it. And most of them were from Central America and Haiti. 
uh, and also uh, Sudan. And then there was a, a, a smaller population from Nepal. And um, a lot of people in the far right sort of anti-immigrant movement really don't like temporary protected status. Because if you think about it, it's just a pure humanitarian law. And once it goes into place, then if things stay bad, the government doesn't have any power to stop it. You know, I mean, it does, but you have to make an assessment of the ground conditions. And if the ground conditions say the civil war in Sudan is still going on, or there's still thousands of people leaving El Salvador because the society is still kind of broken and the ecological problems and all that, then people get to stay. So the Trump administration really wanted to end it. And uh, and they they tried really hard to do that. Uh, and um, you know these these political appointees came in and they they kind of really really tried hard. They overruled the objective country conditions people, and they they reached these decisions. And it happened in a really short span of time, over about um, eight months. They tried to end the immigration status through TPS of about four hundred thousand people living in the United States. Um, and then it got a bunch of uh, news. I mean, we were following it because it was a huge, obviously massive impact on people. And, and we're talking about a set of people, by the way, in, of those, the people, and it was from people from six countries. Many of them had lived here for 20 years or more because their countries had had a lot of problems for a long time. I feel like sometimes I tell this to people, it's really hard. You talk to somebody with a background in Sri Lanka, it's not that hard, right? Like 1983 to 2009, it's a really long time. And even now, it's not like, you know, everything is obviously, you know, uh, everything is like fine in Sri Lanka. Places can be like that for a long time. Um, and then, of course, you've got the American teenage kids uh, or grade school kids of people who they lived here 20 years. There's a good chunk of them who had kids. And so now these are kids who, have, who are American and they've never been uh to to that country and they're faced with the situation where the trump administration if it gets its way they have to either go back to haiti or sudan which is still in the midst of a war or they have to be separated from their parents which is incredibly sad so that was the situation of these people um, and then it got a lot of attention because uh there was a, actually a set of, of, of senators a bipartisan group of, of senators who tried to essentially fix the problem that the trump administration had created by proposing a law that would have given green cards, a permanent residence to the set of um, temporary protective status uh, communities that had been here for a long time. And they had a meeting at the White House and that's the meeting where President, then President Trump said, why are we having all these people from shithole countries coming here? Why can't we have more people from countries like Norway? That, that was a meeting about temporary protective status and a way of trying to give a proposal to give green cards to them that, that, that senators from both parties had agreed to actually. So we we filed a lawsuit challenging uh, the terminations because, like I said, they were they were inconsistent with the reality on the ground, um, and we also said that the decisions were actually motivated by racism because there was a lot. There was that statement, obviously, is blatantly racist statement. But there's a lot of other evidence as well um, in the lead up to the decision that suggested that it was influenced by these um, anti-immigrant white supremacist groups that had uh, been very close to the Trump administration. You know, now it's not that weird to say that because they're so out in the open, but actually back in 2018, there were still some people who were like, are you really gonna tell a court that the, the president is in league with white supremacists? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> actually, it's kind of the way it is, even though that's totally strange and seems so weird. And yeah, we we won it uh, initially. We stopped the the terminations from going into effect. And it's a long story. I don't know if I want to get all, get all the way into it, but the, but the bottom line is the 400,000 people are still here. 
they had pushed to try and get Congress to pass that same uh, deal that I told you about, but that hasn't happened either. So they're still living in limbo. Um, they currently have status for sure through June of 2024, um, which is good. It's definitely better than it, you know, having uh, being, you know, about to go out like at the end of this year or something. But it's 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 not a way to live, you know. I mean, I mean, if if you've lived in a place that long, you have children like that, and there really needs to be a way for people like that just to to be permanently in the society. You know, when you've lived there for twenty years, it's like, what are we doing? You know. So yeah, that's 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 Ramos in in a nutshell. What is uh, maybe I'm getting it wrong? Deca is that something that's supposed to help protect children of temporary <laughs> protective status? It's similar. So and there are there are children of TPS holders who have DACA. Um, the children I was talking about, who are the, a lot of the focus of Ramos, are Americans. They're born in the U.S., right? Because the way, obviously, you, I'm sure you're, you're, you and your audience will know this, but you know, if you're born in the U.S., you're a U.S. citizen. You can't be deported, right? It's just the family separation risk, which is so massive, because your parents don't get to um, get citizenship off of you, um, although they can after you turn 21, and it's complicated, but. DACA is in the, the 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 youth, and now they're not just youth; they're people, you know, of um, even younger than me, but still, you know, middle aged. I guess I would say um, they're people who who present a lot like the children of immigrants, like um, you know, uh, you or me. But actually, they were brought here when they were really young, and <clears throat> so they might, you know, they they might have grown up entirely in the U.S. In many cases, English isn't just their best language; it's their only language. But actually, they're undocumented because they're, if their parents came here and either overstayed their visas or they crossed in the desert and never had status when the kid was like, you know, one or two or three or something. Now, then they go to school and, you know, they like everyone else in the world. Some of them, uh, you know, struggle to get by or whatever. Some of them do really, really well. And they like win the Pulitzer Prize for journalism or they're doctors and lawyers and, you know, all the things. But they're undocumented. And that, and, and DACA was a program that uh, was created during the Obama administration to try and give those people some amount of security. It's not, it's, again, it's not a green card. It's not permanent residence. But it's like, we won't deport you if you don't commit any crimes and we'll allow you to work here. That's basically DACA. Did you know that every time you left a 5 out of 5 review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. It's like a bit confusing to me because they're like, you know, these folks that grow up to be, doesn't matter if they're successful or not, but in the case where they are very successful or just, you know, contributing in some way to society and assuming by doing the thing they are doing, whether it's being a doctor or like working at the grocery store, they're paying taxes as well. So they're doing all the things that a citizen would do except they don't have any of the protections. And I feel like, you know, um, like you said, I can't imagine living somewhere where for 18, 20 years, like you don't know when you're going to have to be asked to leave, especially like, you know, I I guess the children are okay, but then you grow up with like your parents and all of a sudden your parents maybe have to leave you because if you don't want to go back and they probably, I'm guessing the parents would probably want to leave their kids in the U.S. for that opportunity because that's kind of why they crossed over, like took all these risks to get here. Right. Um, but the so, children, but the children think, oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, it's, and it's one thing if you're 18. It's another thing if you're 10 or you're 12. Um, m- many right. of my um, TPS holder clients um, have told me how the first time they told their children that they even were here on any kind of temporary status was after the Trump uh, statements. 
and the decisions getting announced. Um, because, you know, why would you tell an 11 year old or a 12 year old some weird thing about your immigration status when you've lived here for 20 years lawfully? They live here lawfully for 20 years. They have a work authorization. They do pay the taxes and they work and everything. And it, it, it really produced some really brutal, harsh uh, conversations in, in families as a result. I've heard, you know, like I'm not, a, I'm Canadian. So like what I read is a lot in the media and, you know, I don't know the things that you would know, but like, um, how does ICE fit into the, this whole picture around like, you know, immigration law or like, immig- you know, uh, the rights of immigrants and what ICE, why was ICE created? And like, yeah, like what kind of powers do they have? Yeah, I really think uh, U.S. immigration policy, it, it kind of went off the rails in the mid 90s and then it really went off the rails after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. So one thing which happened was in 2002, the government created this thing called the Department of Homeland Security. And um, it was all ostensibly a mission about protecting the homeland and defending national security. And um, and it put a bunch of different agencies under one umbrella. Uh, almost all the immigration enforcement basically like all of it except for what's at the border the border is different but what's in the interior of the u.s what they call the interior was put under ice which is immigration customs enforcement and uh included in that is this really large prison system which is only for non-citizens includes and 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 it, it includes people who are ostensibly not being held in what's legally prison they're not like being punished by it uh but it's a prison that's run by private prison companies or county jails or sometimes by um, the federal government directly. That actually started in the in the late 90s. So I, should, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. The, the, the 1996 law actually is what um, created the sort of modern infrastructure that built the ICE prison system. But it got it expanded dramatically after 2001. And, you know, it's funny if you even today, if you read their rhetoric and certainly um, before you read their rhetoric, it makes it sound like our job is to protect national security. It's like, you know, never again, no 9-11. You know, that's like all the rhetoric of it. But what they do is just garden variety immigration enforcement. Like, you know, I don't know that I have a statistic for you right now, but like 90 something percent of the resources, more than that, I suspect, probably probably way more than that, actually, is being spent on just deporting and jailing undocumented people or people who actually have a right to, you know, have a valid um uh, immigration uh, thank you um, who, who have a, a valid immigration document uh, but then do something that uh, you know they work on a student visa they're convicted of a crime or something and then the government says oh we can take it away and they might say like no no I still have a right to my green card and then while that process plays out in court they lock them in the jail um so yeah that, that's sort of ice in a in a nutshell uh it's really uh I mean, I, I guess uh, there's definitely plenty of dysfunction in the agency itself, um, but but the problems really have to do with the fact that the U.S. from even the 90s and certainly since 2001 has kind of viewed immigrants through a lens of a public safety threat and has thought about the war on terror as partly a war on immigrants and a war on immigration. And that conflation of those two things is actually what produces a, a huge amount of dysfunction in our in our immigration policy. Even though, if you look at the demographics of the, demographics of the U.S., 
declining birth rates, et cetera, immigrants should economically be looked at as a, 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 a source of strength because if you look at, you know, there's so many anecdotal, but like even just actual factual evidence of a lot of wealth creation and economic, the economic engine of the U.S. has been driven a lot by immigrants, um, but obviously they're not going to, you know, I guess they're not going to tell that story if they're trying to do something else. They can't paint all immigrants as this positive story. And uh, yeah, but the, yeah, I mean, it's overwhelming consensus of economists that immigration is good for the economy. Um, and yet somehow that doesn't prevent uh, this idea of immigrants taking jobs and the hysteria associated with the dangerous immigrant from really permeating the culture and then through the culture driving the policy itself. Well, I look at it two things with immigrants. There's two things. The immigrants that in the U.S. and I guess in Canada to some degree do the jobs that quote unquote Americans won't do because, um, you know, farming like, you know, when Trump was uh, this whole thing rhetoric against like Mexicans kind of crossing the border. But, you know, a lot of the farming industry relies and they were like in big trouble and they they were like not for that policy because yeah. no American is going to be, you know, picking tomatoes for whatever they're, you know, paying those yeah. undocumented yeah. immigrants to work for. And yeah. the other thing is on the other side is because of kind of the American quote unquote American dream and immigrants and kind of their risk taking because of, you know, if you're taking a risk by leaving a country, you know, whether it's because of war or something else, you bring that energy and thinking and kind of resourcefulness to a place like America, where in the right circumstances, you can kind of flourish. So you have the other side, which is people that are creating outsized gains that benefit them, but not just them, but like the American economy in general, you know, that story is kind of really being missed. But, you know, obviously politics gets in the way of that kind of storytelling. Um, the other thing is organizations like ICE, first of all, like uh, such a scary sounding name. <laughs> uh, and then like, I guess, second of all, like because of the promotion of, you know, racial, like, you know, racial, like, um, or like, you know, the far right movement, and, you know, if you look at both police departments and like ICE, this things I'm reading, obviously, you'd be a lot more kind of aware of it. But the people that kind of tend to go into those kind of roles, especially after President Trump kind of came into power, were people that were, it seemed like a lot more of them were people that shared the views of like anti-immigrant, far right, you know, people that for them, this wasn't doing a job, but this was kind of fulfilling almost like a fantasy of theirs of, you know, protecting America from these immigrants that they personally hated as well. So, and then feeding also into a for-profit, I, I don't know the percentage, but a for-profit prison system, which has companies that include, you know, um, what do they call those groups that uh, pay the money? Geo, yeah, the private prison companies, GEO. No, um, no. They have Corporation, you know, Corrections Corporation of America. Sorry, sorry, or what are you talking about? Emma? No, like people that um, spend money, like these companies pay these people to, there's a term for it. I don't know why it's slipping my head, like where they go to Congress or like government to push policies. Yeah, so they pay millions of dollars to these lobbyists to, number one, put policies in place, but also keep policies in place that should not be there to help feed into these, like the for-profit prison system is just, crazy to me because you know you have these laws which shouldn't Talk be about there, a but... moral hazard right like yeah. what a, i mean my goodness you create a, an incentive to lock people up it's a horrible incentive system so anyways i just find like the american kind of immigration system like crazy even as an like canadian crossing into america like i'm like terrified of kind of going through the even though i've done nothing wrong it's just like you're just like you don't want to say the wrong thing to kind of you know annoy somebody at customs but uh, yeah. yeah no it's a it's it's a, a really uh a dysfunctional system in so many ways i mean what like you said uh 
say the wrong thing, those border patrol officers have incredible power. You know, yes. They have power to, to um, deny visas, even if they've been granted by, or, or not honor, you know, refuse to honor visas, even if they've been granted by State Department officers abroad. And obviously they have a huge amount of power in a situation like with Canada, people coming, um, you know, on a visa waiver uh, related program just to, just to be, just exercise arbitrary government power. Uh, and obviously that's even apart from put, putting people in security lines and all that. Um, I will never forget uh, being sent into secondary inspection when I, I traveled with my father um, uh, right after the tsunami, <clears throat> and uh, you know we were in Sri Lanka doing doing relief work. Uh, <clears throat> and then we came back, and we were sent into the secondary inspection uh, line at the um, border patrol, se separate place where they search your bags, uh, interrogate you. They tried to separate us. Um, and I was like, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm his lawyer. I, I refuse. And, you know, we had this kind of very tense exchange. Um, and it was just, it was so awful. And especially after coming after that, that was that, you know, it was such a, a heart wrenching and, uh, and draining experience, um, to do that, um, that, uh, trip. And then to come back and this is the, this is the reception you get from, from your country. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's an awful, awful dysfunctional system in so many ways. And in that scenario, you're kind of, you're, you, I guess you and your father, your father especially was lucky that you were a lawyer as well. I mean, I can't imagine somebody that's not, that, is, that doesn't have the confidence of knowing the law as well as you do, kind of protecting themselves. You know, uh, I, for a time, it is, it's less true now, but for a time when the conflict was live and, uh, you know, obviously when uh, the government was much more interested in tracking, in, in tracking, uh, you know, uh, LTTE and its movements, but also and then in tracking people interested in human rights in Sri Lanka because the FBI is not good at distinguishing between these things. You know, um, there were a lot of people in our community who were getting stopped and interrogated at the airport, sometimes even pulled off the plane, like the plane lands. And before anything else happens, these agents come and take one person and take them off the airport, which is so embarrassing and humiliating without charging anybody with a crime because they weren't committing a crime. And so for a while, this also was a huge issue in Muslim communities uh, all over. It's still, it's actually still is a problem in a lot of Muslim communities in, in the US. One of the things that I did uh, a lot of was I would give people letters that stated the law and said very clearly that I'm not going to answer any uh, answer any questions beyond those that are needed to verify my identity. Because you know, if you know my identity, you know that I have a US passport. If I have the US passport, I have the right to come into the country um, and I, I'm not doing it. I also try and train people. They can search your bags, but you don't have to answer any questions. If they want to sit there and you know, go through your socks and look inside your toothpaste <laughs> you know, <clears throat> container, that's fine, but you don't have to cooperate with this. And uh, a lot of people did it. I think some people you know, didn't 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 do that because they they felt psychologically pressured by the um, the officials. But I thought it was really important uh, because I thought it was important for people to not just accede to that. You know, there's this incredible tendency that a lot of uh, immigrant uh, immigrants feel to prove that they deserve to be here and that there's nothing to be scared of by just being entirely. Um, uh, sort of pliant and letting their rights get completely trampled. I think a really important role that the first generation can play, we have that security because we've grown up here, we know what our rights are and we have the, a little bit more empower, uh, feel more empowered to assert them. It was like trying to teach people, hey, you can use this thing. 
Um, and I think I think that did help a lot of people. It gave a lot of people security anyway. At least they felt a little more more comfortable knowing they didn't have to get sort of dragged into like an endless conversation about everybody they visited and what all their phone numbers were and all those people and who they know and you know what you were doing in this place and that place. Um, that that problem went on in our community for a long time. I really get the sense that it's died down a lot now, but it, it definitely went on for many years. Yeah, related to that, I think one of the cases you worked on was FBI versus Vazaga, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. And that was related to the the Muslim community. And you you kind of, before we kind of connected, you mentioned that was like a case that had, you know, importance in immigration law. So maybe talk about that, you know, as briefly as you want to talk about it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So that case I actually argued in the Supreme Court just this past November. Um, and uh, we survived. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't say one, but the government tried to get the whole case thrown out, and the court did not do that. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, this is not a a very friendly court to, uh, to to civil rights claims, at least the kind that that you bring on behalf of immigrant communities. But, but yeah, the case the case arose out of this um, really set of incidents that happened in Southern California um, uh, many years ago now where the FBI sent an informant in to spy on uh, Muslims indiscriminately, just people, Muslim community members all throughout Southern California. And the only instructions were just gather as many names and phone numbers and license plate numbers as you can uh, and just spy on everyone. He wore a wire, recorded all these conversations. And, you know, the way Islam, as I understand it, you know, um, uh, works is you have an obligation to uh, bring converts into the community and try and teach them uh, uh, the basic tenets of the religion. The people welcomed him. And um, and this is back now, informants is much more widely understood that the FBI uses a lot of informants. There's a lot more justified skepticism toward outsiders, which is sad. Actually, it's really sad because it's really contrary to the kind of basic uh, thematics and sort of culture of the, that goes with the religion. Um, but but back then they you know let him into their lives and you know some of our my clients you know brought him home and his mom cooked food for this guy and uh, you know had many intimate conversations and the whole time he's recording um, and then eventually his cover got blown and uh, you know that that gave us a lot of information that the FBI was actually targeting people just on the basis of their religion so we brought the lawsuit and the government basically said. Uh, we promise that we don't do this. We promise we don't actually target people because of their religion, but to actually defend ourselves against your lawsuit, we would have to reveal secret information until your whole case has to just be go away. And then they, they invoke this doctrine called the state secrets privilege, which they say justifies this. Um, and, the, and the case, I mean, it's a very technical case, but it really turns on the contours of that. You know, we say that's wrong. That's not, the state secrets privilege doesn't mean that, doesn't allow you to do that. Um, and we also said, if you want, show the stuff to the judge. Don't show it to us. You say you have some defense, show it to the judge and let the judge decide whether actually it's true that you don't target people on the basis of religion. And then we know this because we know all these people that this guy spied on, including our our, our clients are these amazing people, an imam at a very prominent mosque in Southern California, a, a, a guy who works very, um, doing great work in the medical um, technology industry, a computer programmer, these guys have never been charged with a crime. They've never been arrested for anything in their whole life. And this informant spent like hours and hours spying on them. So obviously, you know, it strongly suggests when there were dozens of people like this and more, that probably he was just spying on people because of their religion. 
Um, and so that's sort of what happened. And they, they, we won in the, in the in lower court and then the intermediate court, and then the government got the Supreme Court to review it, tried to get them to toss out the whole case. They narrowed our case, but they did not toss it out. Uh, and so we're still kind of fighting in court, trying to just uh, get get to the day when when we can just present the facts. All we want to do actually is present the facts. I think if we get that far, it'll show that there is, in fact, there has been just a huge amount of re- uh, religious discrimination against the Muslim community by the FBI in the United States, going back to 9-11, I'm sure, um, but but at least definitely in Southern California for for the years that... Um, you know, that, that the case is about. Well, like you, you must be a fun guy to kind of have dinner with and all these interesting <laughs> stories. Um, well, you know, like there's a saying um, or like a joke that those that cannot do teach. And I know you teach, but you definitely kind of have the credibility. It's like, um, you know, it's like a Tom Brady being like a football coach, you know, it's like, you, you, um, maybe you're not going to be a good coach. I don't know, but, uh, but, you know, you, you know, you chose to kind of step into kind of teaching and being professor in addition to doing kind of the important work that you do in the field. Uh, what was the reasoning behind, you know, making that decision? Yeah, I, I actually love teaching uh, and I, I loved uh, training younger attorneys and um, kind of sharing what I know and getting their perspective. Uh, I had done a little bit of what they call adjunct teaching, which is like trying to teach while also having a full-time job uh, a couple of times. And I loved the teaching, but I thought I'm going to die if I try and do this like while, while working full-time on my full caseload. So uh, the the idea was to make a transition, but find a role where I could still, and it's exactly what you said, where I can still do some amount of litigation and advocacy, but also carve out enough space to teach. And um, yeah, about a couple of years ago, UCLA um, you know, sort of recruited me to to try and and create the center where uh, we could do that, and also hire other people into it, um, so that we could really spend the time to think about really interesting ideas in immigration policy. And also I would have space to, to teach students. So yeah, for me, um, when I teach, I definitely bring a lot of my, my work experience and, uh, and the cases that I've, uh, I've worked on, the people that I've met, uh, my understanding of litigation. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to be a good, uh, law professor, but for me, the way is really to try and, and, um, immerse the students in my kind of practical understanding that comes from my my uh, years practicing law as you talked about ucla kind of recruiting you i think of you know i don't like the term but networking or like but more so i, I look at it as relationship building um for you throughout your career and like you know maybe your recent opportunities um have you found that relationship building or like building a network um has that been kind of fruitful and like is this something that you spend a lot of time doing and also like i know you like to teach and kind of mentor but how about on the other flip side of you being mentored like do you believe in being mentored and like do you have any like relation like do you have a relationship with a mentor that's kind of had an impact on you yeah i i think uh money can be hard to come by but here's a hundred dollar opportunity for you join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win a hundred dollars when i hold special draws did i mention that it's free I haven't been uh, extremely self-conscious about trying to build a network in a conscious way. Um, it sort of happened organically over time. Although I wonder sometimes if I would have been more um, effective at my job if I had, uh, because it is absolutely true what you say. Um, and and times when it happens sort of by accident and I end up with um, 
friends who are well positioned or people who I cross paths with, with who are really well positioned to to do really uh, great work. You know, I I you know hugely benefit from that, and vice versa. You know, I think uh, I I never when people contact me, I almost always feel like yeah, I'm, I, if it's somebody who I know and I remember and I worked well with, I'm like oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely happy to. Um, to just do what I can to support them. Um, and it's something that I think when I was younger, like I'm talking about like college and early law school, I might've looked down on it a little bit, like, oh, networking, yeah, you know? But now as I see it over, like this is this is just how human engagement happens. Um, there's a, definitely a risk. You don't want to be in a position where, oh, you only hire your friends uh, because obviously that can produce certain kinds of discrimination and insular thinking and uh, be problematic in ways like that. <clears throat> but you can temper that and still build and build your networks and, and really gain from that. And I think, um, yeah, I think if, if I had um, not had a sort of negative impression about the concept of it when I was younger, um, it probably would have benefited me more. You know, as far as mentors, um, I'm not sure there's any, you know, the the. Uh, not a lot of lawyers in the Sri Lankan Tamil community uh, uh, before my generation of people in the U.S. Obviously, there were in, in Sri Lanka and other places. So in that sense, not exactly. But there were definitely people who I worked for who taught me a huge amount and who I learned a huge amount from. My, my first boss at the ACLU was this man named Lucas Gutentag, who was the founder of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. I worked for him in New York amazing uh, person brilliant lawyer but uh, he's still I mean, he's still um he's actually working on immigration policy in the biden administration now and he's also a professor he advised me in a lot of my cases <laughs> there's another person who kind of like me made the transition named uh jay shri srikantayash she's a professor um, at stanford law school um definitely like looked up to her and followed her kind of career path and learned a lot from talking to her we also did a bunch of cases together those are some people but there's not there's not like a you know like one person and I was like, oh, that's the person I want to be. And I want to kind of be in the world just exactly like them, which I think is probably the product of being a first generation. Right? What's been like a failure or like better quote, like a learning lesson that you've experienced in the last, let's say, three to five years? And like, what did you learn from that? I mean, definitely <clears throat> the the case, which to this day eats at me and uh, is really the one that I feel most pain uh, about when I think about it, it's not one case, it's a set of cases that we did over the course of like five years, starting in 2014, to try and force the government to give lawyers to children facing deportation. And we brought a number of cases trying to just establish this really simple thing, which is if you're a child and you are in an immigration court and you're facing deportation and there is a trained prosecutor who is arguing in front of a judge that you should be deported, that you should have a lawyer and that you can't have a fair hearing unless you have a lawyer. And if you can't pay for one or your family can't pay for one for you, then you need to have a lawyer appointed. And we we never we never lost in the sense there wasn't a court that said no, but they closed every door. They said, you can't bring it as a class action. You can't bring it in uh, you know, the district court. And we brought it through some other way. And they said, oh, wait, your, your child wins on some other re for some other reason, but we're not deciding it. And we brought it another way. They didn't decide that. We brought it other. I mean, like all these different ways. I argued this in front of like, I think at one point I counted like 15 judges, federal judges from multiple levels. And then we never got a ruling. And to this day, the Biden administration is deporting children. They're ordering children deported in immigration courts uh, when the children are unrepresented. It's, it's, I know it's, there's so many dysfunctional, crazy things about our immigration system, but this is like way up there, way up there. And it just seemed like such a basic, obvious thing. Uh, you know, we tried so we, we brought it in court. Uh, we brought uh, it to Congress. Uh, we did advocacy at the local and state levels. 
We did social media campaigns. There's amazing videos. You can Google some of this stuff. ACLU toddler video. Take take a look. It's this video of people interviewing three and four year olds about their, as a joke, you know, about their knowledge of immigration law. Because I was deposing, I took the deposition, uh, you know, the sworn testimony of a government official who was supposed to train immigration judges who told me that he could teach immigration law to three and four year olds. And I have it on tape of him saying this uh, from a deposition. And, you know, they did, they, they demoted him, like essentially fired him from his job, but they still kept doing it, you know, <clears throat> uh, and uh, when, it, when it went public, you know, that, that went really public. So that, I mean, that, that one, it really, it pains me to this day. Um, I think a lot about what could we have done differently. We should have you know, filed the case in a different way. We should have argued it in a different way. We should have filed it in a different court. We should have done the timing. If we'd done it sooner, you know, we did it at, by the time we did it, there was a lot of Central American children coming. You know, I think if we had done the case a year earlier, maybe we would have we, we would have won it much more easily. I don't know, you know, but but so many things I think about that we might have done differently with that. But it's crazy, like the way you break it down, it's like, yeah, like a, a like a, a trained lawyer, essentially, that's prosecuting, let's say, like a four or five year old. Like, how are they going to defend themselves without it makes no it is, sense. That, is, that is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. And you see these reporters have written stories about this when they've managed to get into court um, of these kids who are there and the judge tries to talk to them and they're like dangling their feet don't even touch the ground and of course they never say anything coherent they never have a, a proper hearing the judges just order them deported most of the time or they close their cases some judges are you know human they think it's crazy too they try and find a way to close the case and somehow avoid the entry of the deportation order but thousands and thousands and thousands of them have been deported uh, order deported since since I mean, really going back to 2014. Been yeah, like how can a child who is barely learning to speak, and especially if they're an immigrant, that English isn't their first language, be uh, I'm like a grown man, and I don't, I would definitely struggle to defend myself in a court. So, anyways, yeah, I yeah. can see that. Where do you see yourself? You know, the next you know three to five years, like, um, do you still see yourself continuing to just a kind of combination of teaching and? advocacy work or do you have any, any other plans yeah I, I like this this i mean it's new to me still right because i've only been at ucla since march of 2021 and um doing something different after uh almost 20 years is is interesting it's invigorating in some ways uh it's definitely a little stressful it definitely gives you a little you know it's new new crowd new set of people um but yeah i definitely i i like this and um i would guess that in five years i'll probably be doing very something very similar to what i'm doing now i guess if, if you had a chance to go back in a time machine and visit your 16 year old self what would you tell him my 16 year old self i think i'd say enjoy the soccer because it won't last forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't, I was, i'm trying to think of what if i could give you a more serious answer when i was 16 years old it's tough you know like at that age uh there's so so many things I did not uh, understand about the world and which way things would go. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that 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 is that is a real thing though. Like you know, I I I feel that I can't play soccer anymore because I'm too injured. So I get too injured too much, you know. Uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I, I wish I had kind of treasured it more than I did. Probably, you know. I think it's good advice, you know. Play more because nothing yeah. is nothing <laughs> is finite. Or yeah. no, nothing is forever. Sorry. Infinite, yeah. yeah. In terms of your personal legacy in a few sentences, or like as however you want to describe it, but how would you want to be remembered by your friends and family? I definitely want to be remembered as a as a good uh, parent and husband and son, and um, hopefully somebody who brought our kept brought or kept our family um, uh, close and kept our 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 sense of ourselves, our identity uh, close. 
in a time when it's tricky to do that because we're spread all over the world. Even now, my extended family is all over the world. Um, in terms of work, I think just know that I, I, I mean, I hope I'm remembered as someone who, who tried to make the world fairer and um, more just and also that had some ideas that maybe withstand the test of time. You know, I, I hope that some of the ideas that are out there from whether from my cases or from my writing, whatever, are ideas that people will think about, you know, even, I don't know, 20 or 50 years after I'm gone. Uh, that's a lot to hope for. I don't know that that'll, that'll work out, but that would be, that would, that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. Well, that's kind of a good segue into the final segment. It's a fun speed run I like to call Creator Confessions. I'm just going to say a bunch of statements. And okay. uh, you just tell me the first thing that pops to mind. Ready? Okay. Okay. Favorite Tamil food? Uh, Udiyapam. Something that scares you? Uh, horror movies. Insecurity that you have? Uh, don't play the piano well. Oh, interesting. Favorite TV like, show you're watching? Like scared, yeah. to, scared to play in front of other people. Like uh, okay. say that. <laughs> Uh, favorite TV show you're watching? The World Cup right now. Uh, somewhere you're itching to travel to? Uh, Bolivia. A fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? Uh, so many. Uh, Dilo. Do you know Dilo? Uh, yes. Uh, Nimigarina then. Uh, if you're in Toronto, we suited Xavier. He's a fantastic law professor um, in Toronto. Yeah, those are some. There's plenty others. But um, Mario Arudas, do you know who that is? He uh, is a, 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 a scholar of uh, Tamil political history, uh, and he used to work for, uh, he still does, I think, this human rights work related to, related to Sri Lanka. Um, Favorite childhood memory? Playing playing in the backyard with my brother. Yeah, soccer, basketball, other stuff. Something you like to do for fun outside of work? Um, bicycling. Favorite movie of all time? Ooh, boy, that's tough. Amadeus. There's a lot. It's really tough. But Amadeus is definitely one of them. A purchase you've made, you've splurged on recently that you have no regret about. <laughs> that I have no regret about. There's the big fish tank, but <laughs> it's like crazy. So uh, yeah, I'll go with that one. I'll go with that one. I want to. I want to have no regrets about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pet peeve of yours. People thinking I'm Indian do not like that. Us. Like if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have. Ooh. I mean, think about uh, uh, not having spent more time with uh, with my with my family, and particularly my my child. Uh, celebrity or person whose life you'd want to experience for just one day? Gandhi. A book you've read or a podcast you've listened to that's had an impact on you? Um, uh, how to How to Hide an Empire. Do you know that book? No, I will look, check it you out. You should check it out. It is fantastic. How to Hide an Empire by Daniel Imervar. Really good book. A belief, behavior, or habit that's improved your life? Uh, not staying up late to do work. Good one. I've adopted that too. Uh, a piece of advice. That, and finally, a piece of advice that you would give to your fellow aspiring Tamil creators out there. I don't know if I have any advice. But Tam Tamil creators are fantastic. You know, um, we're, we're such a vibrant, amazing community. I don't know that I would say, uh, uh, be yourself. You do you. Something like that. That's great advice. Well, thank you, Helen, for kind of jumping on and, you know, sharing your wealth of knowledge and like your interesting stories. I mean, like I said, I feel like you could be, you'd definitely be a good, you know, uh, dinner buddy to kind of, or beer buddy just to kind of Someday, hear all these stories. If you're ever in LA, I'm serious. I'm totally serious. If, you ever, if ever life ever brings you, I guess with two two-year-olds may not be happening anytime soon, but if life ever brings you to LA, let me know. I also, I'm, I'm actually do a, 
I want to find a way to get to Toronto. Um, I do have a, a bunch of friends there. Um, uh, and uh, I, have, I haven't, I mean, years and years since I've been. Um, so if that ever happens, I gotta, I, gotta like, I, have, I have a lot of family and a lot of friends in Toronto, as you might imagine. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, next time you're here, I'd, I'd be happy to take you to some of my recommended food spots for to get you your your dose of Telma food. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, well, thanks again, Ahilan, and you know, uh, appreciate you making time. And for those of you listening, thank you as always, and uh, on to the next episode. Yeah.